Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 6, The Sounds of Thunder, is over. But we are just getting started. You're on post-show recaps. My name is Jessica Leese, and with me as always is the guy who never turns down a big old slice of galaxy pie, Mr. Mike Bloom. Uh, I mean, it really depends. I'm more of a like a cream pie than a fruit pie myself. Uh, ganglia pie, I am definitely all out on. Yeah, I, I heard the ganglia is the best part, Mike. You are missing out, my friend. Well, it depends on what evolved form, because uh, it seems like if you have the evolved form of ganglia pie, it's less uh, flaccid and more like eating a bunch of needles sticking out of your pie. Yeah, it's it's very crunchy and spiky, and I I guess the Baul are all out on that. I mean, listen, the Baul, they're the opposite of crunchy people, it seems, considering how, at least from what we're seeing, how, I don't know, uh, goopy and floppy they are. They're the complete opposite from any sort of uh, firmness that might come with the Kelpians. They basically live in a giant pool of chocolate syrup, so you know that they, you know that the Baul are really like chocolate dessert kind of people. Yeah, they really, uh, they came out of that chocolate river that Augustus Gloop fell into. What actually happened behind the scenes is that he was taken by a Baul uh, aboard their ship slash aquatic uh, headquarters, and we're going to see him come in. It's going to be a weird Willy Wonka slash Star Trek crossover that nobody was asking for. This is the crossover of the century. <laughs> yes, the crossover of the 23rd century, specifically. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, Mike, what did you think of this episode overall? I... I really enjoyed it just because, I mean, uh, this this season so far has really been a showcase for Doug Jones. And I mean, if we talked about season four or episode four being a good display, this blew it right out of the water. I love seeing Saru 2.0. We got the story developed on this Kaminar thing, this Kelpian Baul thing. It's debatable if, if we're revisiting it or not. But you know what? I think that one of the reasons why I enjoyed this so much is... You know, Spock was mentioned, what, maybe twice in this episode. I like that we're taking a bit of a break from it, and, and we're embracing something that was talked about in these short treks, built up a bit more in episode four, and now really hit its stride and even embraces some of the main plot elements with the Raid Angel's appearance at the very end. So I think, you know, observing it just purely as a Doug Jones performance piece slash a piece of world building, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. What about you? Mike, you could not be more wrong on everything. I, I really I'm I'm out on like all of these things. Come to think of it, uh, I think I'm this should be an interesting podcast because I think I'm kind of the opposite end of everything from you. Um, I did enjoy the episode. I will give you that. But I have to say. Everything you said you liked about the episode were things I did not. Ooh, OK. All right. So first of all, we didn't mention Spock at all so that we could drag out the Spock storyline for another week without bringing him on and go off on this little side quest to Kaminar so that we could delve into something that we need to, in order to understand what is going on, we need to have watched the web-exclusive mid-season series things that nobody actually watches. I mean, I watched them, of course, and you watched them because we cover the show, but I think it's putting a lot on the audience to force them to have that context there. Mm. I mean, to that point, you have to imagine that uh, CBS puts a lot of faith in the 
determinists of Star Trek fans that even if they're not as fond of a series like Discovery, they would invest themselves into something like Short Treks. Though they did try to, you know, rush some exposition in there to the point where, I don't know if you even noticed this, there was a bit of retcon going on from the Short Treks where uh, you and Rob pointed out that when uh, Giorgio, good Giorgio, came down to greet Saru and bring him aboard, uh, she seemed to be piloting a shuttlecraft from the Shenzhou, considering the SHN on the hood. Uh, <laughs> now the story is that they're from the Archimedes, I believe, to the point where they actually erased the SHN from the hood. So I'm not entirely sure what caused a retcon to happen in the, like the three months in between those episodes, but... Yeah, they're, I mean, that might be a sign that they're saying, okay, maybe you don't need to care too much about these short treks. Yeah, I and I guess there is really no such thing as a Star Trek Discovery casual, is there? Because you already have to be paying money to get the service to watch the show. So it's not a leap to suggest that you would be watching all of the supplemental content. Right, yeah, I, I think that in this day and age, considering the barriers to entry to your point that come with embracing this uh i think it's tough to find people that are just like yeah i mean i'll i just sort of flip it on and sort of look at my phone the entire time considering the level of you know ferocity that this fandom has had for nigh on 50 years i, I could not imagine a casual star trek fan out there if there is one be sure to let me know but i feel like this in particular this series is so committed to not only the stuff it's currently doing but making sure to embrace elements from all the previous series that you really need to feel wired in. You need to be like Arium, wired into this complete Rolodex of thousands of years of history in order to uh, fully grasp the, the magnitude that's coming out in each and every episode. Um, was Arium the MVP of this episode? I mean, discounting the amazing performance from Doug Jones, we get to learn quite a bit about Arium this episode, and I'm here for it if we're having one of the roles on board the ship, the research librarian. Yeah, so I I'm intrigued to ask, what exactly did we learn about her outside of the fact that she has that capability? I mean, that's the thing we learned, that <laughs> she is... I mean, yeah, it's, it's one more thing than we learned about her in the previous, you know, uh, I guess at this point, like 20, so, 20 or so episodes. So you do have a point there. Yo, if I've got the crew of the Discovery in front of me and I have to draft a team for the Jeopardy All-Stars tournament... I'm going with Arium as my first pick. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, it, she still has this big question mark because she still is not a robot, apparently, but she <laughs> has these like data-like abilities to massively do speed read and do all of this research. So uh, still juries out as to what exactly she is, but I'm happy that for all the big game that people have been talking about, like, oh, we're going to see more of these tertiary bridge crew members this season. We've been seeing more of them there aren't exactly qualities that are, you know, stripping them out from one another. Arim is the lone uh, person who stands apart from that because of just the way she looks. I'm happy we're trying to bring at least some utility to her because it totally makes sense. If you had a choice between putting a goofy, traumatized Tilly behind the research project or this machine-like Arium, go with the latter any day of the week. Oh, totally. And I think if you have big projects like this it's not realistic you're gonna give it all to your a squad yeah that's very true which again maybe it was which is why uh tilly got relegated with it i'm happy this is the first episode in a while where ensign tilly was not i don't know possessed 
or kidnapped or traumatized or got a drill in the head or anything like that. So I feel like they still wanted to keep her on active duty to sort of, you know, keep her mind away from things. So they gave her this uh, cute little research project of like, hey, why don't you pour through all this data that the Sphere gave us a couple episodes back? Uh, I just don't think they expected that she would become of much more importance than they initially thought. Well, sure. Sure. And it it's like the equivalent of getting... Um sent up to the floor with all the dusty boxes on it and having to take inventory. Yeah, that's very true. And But it turns out that those dusty boxes contain, I don't know, the groundbreaking thing to uh, stop this mass murderer who just came back into the picture. Because uh, they bring up a huge history of Kaminar to both Discovery and the audience. Uh, we learn... Again, in that brief introduction, whether you saw the short treks or not, uh, we learned a bevy about Kaminar this episode. Millennia's worth of history on Kaminar, Jess. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that we got this chunk of like 2,000 years, and that's all the time that this alleged way that things have always been done is being done. Yeah, it is interesting that they don't note exactly what caused the shift they just sort of did the weird uh color graphs going on in terms of okay here's the proportion of evolved kelpians to unevolved kelpians to baul and at some point they were hunted to near extinction but the baul were able to come back it could honestly be interestingly enough maybe it's a situation like what happened with saru in the short treks episode where maybe a piece of you know starfleet hardware or alien hardware fell off the ship landed on Kaminar, some Baul village, like the remaining group of them banded together, found it, and that's how they gained the upper hand and took advantage over Kaminar. I, maybe one of the reasons why I enjoyed it is because, and you guys talked about this as well, I think what we were led to believe, and what Doug Jones was led to believe as well when I talked to him about this, is that season one, we thought this is a primal thing, right? We thought, I'm, I was thinking like Cheetah and Gazelle in terms of predatory and prey, but it became a much more of a, a fascist-like society, which I think is super interesting in that if we're looking at Star Trek, as it always is to, uh, you know, give a take on the world today through the lens of the distant future, considering the state of the world today and how I think we're bringing these ideas back into question with the rise of these types of ideals, I just thought it was an interesting idea to investigate, uh, you know, in a power structure that I did not think would be what we initially embraced when it came to actually talking about Saru's home planet. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I think almost everybody that I saw out on the internet and elsewhere, and we talked about it on this very podcast, we thought that the direction it was going was that the Baul were more like a Smeagol and Gollum type situation where it would turn out that they are Kelpians that have gone through Kelpian puberty and that they were, you know, same, same. And it was just another step in their evolution. But I like this better. Like, this is a better twist that this oppressed underclass that thinks that everything that is happening to them is primal and can't be fixed. And it's just the way things are. It turns out that they were being oppressed because their overlords feared them. Right. And this idea that the Baal were able to utilize advances in technology and specifically misinformation. Fake <laughs> news might sound familiar here to perpetuate these ideas of, no, you're weak. We need to do this culling. It's for the great balance. When really, 
quite literally, the Kelpians don't know their own strength, and they've been subjugated for generations, have caused sacrifices upon sacrifices, including Saru and Sarana's own father, to feed what essentially is a, a false narrative. And I just want to say also, uh, this might be a lofty thing, but I feel like the Bowels design might be one of my favorite Star Trek alien designs ever. When we heard that Star Trek is coming back in the 2010s and you talk about the advancements in visual effects, I feel like this is what we were thinking of. Just, it was freaky, it was creepy, it was menacing, and I think if you want to introduce this predatory species, at least at a first glance, that we're supposed to be afraid of, that's the way to do it in terms of imagery. Yeah, it was so weird. So do they just live in that puddle of oil all the time? Is it like there's just a big tank and there's a couple of areas where if you're not aquatic, you can stand in those areas and then everybody else is just like in the big puddle all the time? I don't know. Doug Jones has experience with things in tanks, so maybe that's why he's uh, <laughs> good with this episode. It's interesting uh, because, I mean, if you look at this, there are a couple ways to look at this. If you look at the bowel at face value, it's a cool design on what could be considered like an amphibious creature. I mean... It turns out that their uh, their mothership, quote unquote, is like the Legion of Doom swamp base that rises out of that big ass lake. Uh, and so it could feed this idea that, like you said, they are primarily aquatic creatures and maybe they adapted to it to hide from the Kelpians. Uh, but what some people have also been speculating is maybe this is not the actual form of the bowel, but it's a way it's a form that they take to, I don't know, appear more menacing uh, similar to, like, the Wizard of Oz. You know, this is their yeah. version of the big, giant green head. Like, they, they put on the oil suit to go talk to people, but they really look like Ewoks. Yeah, exactly. Which, by the way, I know people have been speculating as to, ooh, is this a, a take on, is this a relative of Armis, the uh, famous creature who kills Tasha Yar in Skin of Evil? And I believe <laughs> the writers have confirmed in an interview that no... All connections to Armis or are coincidental purely. So this was one Easter egg that was uh, unintentional. Well, Armis looked more like a hefty bag full of Jello. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, look, I'm, I'm sure uh, <laughs> Frakes is looking at this now, being like, "Oh man, I wish I could have filmed that scene where I was dragged under nowadays instead of having to like immerse my face in whatever Elmer's glue, black food coloring catastrophe that was back in the 80s and 90s." Yeah, you know they all had to take like three hour showers to get all that stuff off of them. Yeah, it looked it looked pretty viscous and pretty nasty. But I mean, it was just between like the goopiness of it, there was some smoke coming off of it as well. You got like the red eyes going on, which seemed almost possessed. I don't know. It's such a. I mean, if you're looking at the great designs of Star Trek Discovery, look no further than the discrepancy between these two species, between the Bowel and the Kelpians, uh, which I think are just so. Well designed. There's, of course, some interesting color imagery in there with the light and the dark, but they're just such interesting design creatures that are such a far departure from the, hey, uh, for this week, this creature is going to have three ridges on their forehead, as opposed to the ones we had two weeks ago who have five ridges on their forehead. <laughs> that That is very true. And I like not just the visual design, but I think conceptually, the way the Bowel are make a lot of sense. Um, I think that it's very likely that a lot of species out there, when Starfleet approaches them to make first contact, would just kind of pull a North Sentinelese people kind of move and just shoot at them and say, go away, we don't want anything to do with you. 
Mm-hmm. And I liked that we have a species that does that. Like, oh, yeah, we know all about the Ba'ul. We tried to make contact with them and they just didn't want anything to do with us. That makes sense to me. We we should be seeing more of that and less of the, like, interactions with the people with five ridges on their foreheads that are just thrilled to be meeting other people. Yeah, it is an interesting idea of isolationism, which, again, is sort of uh, perpetuated through this of them saying, hey, we don't want anything interfering with us because we have this grip and we want to make sure that nothing gets in its way. Uh, And for the second time this season, Jess, I feel like we have yet another General Order One debate here with Captain Captain Pike, who's becoming the Scalia of Star Trek Discovery (laughs) in terms of how committed he is to the rules. Uh, he, he's able to slide a bit. I know that I think in episode two, we were both pretty much on the side of like, yeah, I think it was okay that, you know, he went down there to uh, introduce some technology. Uh, what, what, what was your take on the debate going on here as to whether or not helping out the Kelpians and trying to prevent this culling, uh, served as a, uh, a violation of the prime directive? Well, there were so many horrible missteps here. Like this is, Maybe the worst treatment of the Prime Directive I've seen in the entire series so far. This was just like, what Prime Directive? At a certain point, it's like they had a very good reason to tell Saru that he couldn't go back to his people. And now it's like, oh, I'm going to go back to my people now just because the Red Orb told me to. And he's going to go down there and he's going to tell them their entire way of life is a lie, which is pretty much the opposite of the Prime Directive. (laughs) And then they're going to transform the entire species and send them into Kelpian puberty just because they want them all to rise up and insurrect against their oppressors. That's, again, this is like they're whipping it out and peeing all over the Prime Directive. <laughs> and don't, don't worry, though. According to them, the battle are still so totally advanced in technology that they won't be ganged up on. Don't worry. So they'll still, they just they'll made it a fair fight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it is interesting. I feel like now we can officially determine that this season there is General Order 1, but I could say General Order 0 is <laughs> let's serve the seven signals. That's what they're basically reasoning with, right? It's like, well, this did appear above Kaminar, and though we don't know the <laughs> rationale behind it, I think we should uh, beam down there and investigate a bit. I'm a bit sad that we only got a couple of scenes on Kaminar just because We've had very little planetary touchdown over the course of Star Trek Discovery's two seasons, so I'm always jonesing for it. And I loved seeing, uh, you know, how agricultural and primal it was during uh, the short treks. Uh, but I can understand, especially considering that, again, there's a lot of stuff going on on the ship proper that you wouldn't want to spend too much time on Kaminar. Yeah. Well, I think I want to back up for a second because you you raise a very good point that there is no prime directive yet. There is a general order one. And... Do you suppose that the actions taken by the crew of the Discovery might be the reason they had to invent the Prime Directive? Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it's sort of like they're the cause. It's like the Discovery rule of like, well, let's make sure that no matter what the mission is, that this is already always the primary mission. Because, yeah, it, it really does seem like even though it's brought up a few times, as you said, it's sort of flagrantly disregarded most prominently here in favor of, well... Uh, you know, we got a guy here who's really connected to this, and he's pissed off. So I think we, we need to make sure that he's sort of placated before, uh, you know, we, we worry about disrupting the status quo. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, well, this was just kind of a general order, but 
maybe we're doing it backwards and maybe instead of just having this be one of the rules, maybe this should be the main motivator for us is to not do any of these things that screwed all of these people just because the red orb told them to. Yeah, absolutely. Though, I mean, I guess, do they feel it's worth it since now we actually have, you know, a clear snapshot of what the or who the red angel might be they feel like oh you know what it was worth it to completely change uh the ecological structure or biological structure of an entire planet because again if what our mission number zero is uh we have made a huge leap forward in what it could or when it could be possibly from well i just still don't think we know enough about these people to make that call. I mean, so what? We know that the Red Angel now, we have the idea that it's a dude in a suit. Okay, I guess that makes everything all right then. Of course, we listen to the dude in the mechanical suit. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the Red Angel for a second. I know we're jumping around a lot here, much like the Red Angel proper, because uh, I do want to revisit your, does your Iconian theory, do you feel like it holds more or less water, more or less black goo, uh, with this revelation than it did back when you first suggested it in episode two, I think. Well, I think it still holds quite a bit of black goo because this is a species that has kind of mysteriously appeared in a couple of different series. And you know how much Disco likes to give nods to every other piece of the Star Trek universe when it has a chance. So I think knowing the writers, and this is, I know, realize this is sort of like Trying to extrapolate the winner of Survivor based on the edit. Mm -hmm. But it does feel to me like this is something the writers would do. Yeah, who has the Angels edit this season? Uh, I have I have two theories. One of them is uh, emotionally driven and one of them is more logically driven, pertinently enough for Discovery. Which one would you want to hear first? Um, I want to hear the Spock one first. Give me the logic. The logic one for me, going back to what you said about the way Disco tends to do things, I would not be surprised if this was future Michael Burnham. Like, what, how on the nose would that be that after all this, you know, agnosticism she's had this entire season about, like, I don't know if I should believe in this thing. I don't think there's anything that's guiding us. It turns out that she's the one who's been guiding them the entire time. Very akin to a Harry casting his own Patronus that saves him in Prisoner of yeah. Azkaban. Uh, I feel like that could be something that happens. Uh, the emotional one, the one that I would want to see personally, is considering all the time jumping that Harry Mudd did last season. I would I would love to see that. Yeah, that makes that makes some sense. Um, and I can tell like the difference between our ages that you went with Harry Potter casting his own Patronus and I went with Bill and Ted leaving the keys underneath the sign. Yes. And the, and the garbage can to fall on some, on the police officer. Yep. Yeah, exactly. The, the other one that I have that was, has been bandied about online is connecting back to another short tricks episode. What do you think about this idea that maybe if you remember this super far in advance in the future, episode of discovery zora the ai of discovery that has advanced for centuries upon centuries since it's been abandoned what do you make of this idea that maybe it's so advanced it made uh you know an an android-like version of itself and sent itself back in time to i don't know assist its former version well that makes sense that it could be certainly driven by zora but we've already seen what zora looks like and she doesn't have any wings or any suits that's true. Uh, yeah, I guess she would be looking like the person from Funny Face, which would be a very 
odd and surprising choice and would be very, very uh, deep cut. I, I think that would be interesting just because I do feel like that episode of Short Treks is probably the least connected to the canon considering how far it takes place into the future. So that would be a cool way to bring it back at least. Uh, I, I'm still not sure how I feel about the time travel component, but part of it just makes me think that if it's time travel, it has to be one of our characters. Like, I feel like why bring that element of time travel in there if it's not someone from the future or someone from an alternate universe, you know? Yeah, I think it's I think it's as good a theory as any. I, I like it. I I would certainly send it to Samoa. As long as it's not Lorca, I'm happy, to be honest. Oh, God. Yeah. Or what if it's Voke the Klingon? Oh, no. Listen, Pike has enough of a stigma against Tyler as it is. Actually, maybe Voke coming back would make him feel better for Tyler because he sort of now realizes the two halves of him. Uh, yeah, our, our petty squabbles between the two continue into this episode, it seems. Yeah, I don't know. It was kind of like the show recognizes that some of its previous episodes had an A plot, a B plot, and a C plot, and you had to follow all those plots very carefully, and we were praising that. But then you have this one episode that's all A plot, and they try to inject a couple of little things in there, but really, can you honestly say you cared about anything that happened here that didn't directly involve Burnham and Saru? Yeah, I guess the lone thing that I thought might be interesting in that it set maybe something up, though, again, much like the Red Angel reveal, we don't have much to go off of concretely, is this follow-up from Stamets and Colbert coming back from the Mycelial Network and Colbert's resurrection, how things might not be as they seem. Scar tissue has healed, uh, but mental scars perhaps have not. This is going to be a tough thing. I was thinking about this a lot, and we didn't really talk about this, but... He survived in a mycelial network for nine months, and he was constantly having war waged on him. And how? What? What was he eating at this point? What, what was he? You know, where was he sleeping? He's been living rough. It's it's been very very rough, and he's going to have a hard time readjusting to that. I think there was an episode of Deep Space Nine. Actually, we want to talk about people getting abused in the Star Trek universe. There was an episode of Deep Space Nine where. Miles O'Brien gets sentenced to prison on this other planet, and they, it's done in error, but the way they do their prison is they implant memories of prison in your head, and you don't actually serve the time, you just think you serve the time. And so the whole episode was about O'Brien trying to readjust to, to life on Deep Space Nine after he thinks he served 30 years in prison. Mm. Yeah, and even like short-term traumatizing situations like i'm thinking back to next gen uh, the episode where Jordy essentially becomes like a manchurian candidate for the romulans and there's that super bleak ending where <laughs> diana diana troy is like yeah we'll eventually you know be able to work on all of your repressed bad memories and be able to replace <laughs> them with good ones but for now you're just gonna have to struggle you bring up a great point about all the mental turmoil that Hugh has been through. And maybe that's sort of what the weird, like, echoing, dis you know, dissociated voices that he hears sometimes represent. I mean, Tyler brings up at the end to Pike in one of their little spats about how, you know, uh, even though the war is over, some of us are still at war. To your point, I wonder if Hugh's sort of in that territory where maybe the fact that he's in a new body, his mind is still sort of still back in the mycelial network in terms of all the havoc he underwent during these nine months. 
Oh, he's definitely going to have at least one scene this season where he and Stamets are asleep in bed and he like sits up in a cold sweat and he's like screaming and thrashing about having a terrible dream about his time in the mycelial network. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And then maybe, you know what? That's going to be his uh, his connecting moment with Ash Tyler, right? They're going to sit down together and commiserate over the shared trauma that they have in terms of these metaphorical war wounds. And that's going to make them realize that they're not so different at the end of the day. Well, it certainly felt like they were trying to strike that connection very early in this episode. They were mm. trying to draw those parallels so that the two of them can have that moment later. Yeah, that's true. Also, random thing uh, I found out from the uh, Star Trek subreddit Apparently, uh, Hugh's story about getting his scar is the first time Puerto Rico has been referenced in the Star Trek franchise. Oh, well, congratulations, Puerto Rico. Yeah, uh, I mean, you don't want to necessarily be associated with, like, falling from scary heights and puncturing your shoulder, but all seemed well at the end of the day, so you can't (laughs) complain too much. Yeah, I mean, you could just as easily have done that on the Pleasure Planet of Ryza. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, maybe they'd want a different type of hole uh, action in Ryza. Uh, yeah, I didn't even realize that because they when they say, you know, they said Cabo Rojo and it, it sort of like went super quick that I thought it was just some name of some planet that we don't know yet. But uh, I like that. I, I, I'm always uh, happy when they go back to Earth and, you know, they do Earth based things because it's fun to see what their take on Earth, you know, in the distant future is like. So. I mean, we're probably spending more time talking about this than we actually saw of Hugh Colber on screen this episode. But I feel like we have to give it its due just because, again, he is back. We only got a smidge of what Colber 2.0 is like. We got a lot of Saru 2.0, but not a lot of Colber 2.0. But I guess it's something to sort of uh, keep track on as the season progresses. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do think that having Colber have that conversation with Saru just to like push Saru into the forefront. That was a little ham-handed, but it did start to set things up for, you know, Saru can come to that club too. Like he and Tyler will, they all sit there and talk about like how they feel like a totally different person now that their traumatic event has happened. You know, there's a good support group happening. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is where they need a counselor. It's like host just some sort of like, I don't know, Victims Club, where they can they can talk through these things. I, I just want to circle back to say, again, I loved Doug Jones as confident Saru. Again, he was very, <laughs> very much a contempt of Pike, especially on the bridge where he's smashing the tablets and talking back to the Ba'ul. But it's just such a great sign of versatility from him. And, you know, if we're talking about Saru as the Spock analog for Discovery, this feels like a break in character. Pon Far being the exception from what we usually saw of Spock. So are you, are you saying this is like Saru's Pon Far? I was thinking about it, but it's it's a permanent Pon Far, right? And luckily it doesn't have to deal with any sort of, uh, I don't know, getting busy with any other Kelpians. Yeah, that we know of. And I really want to stress again how terrible this was from a General Order 1 standpoint, because as soon as they unleashed the signal that was going to trigger Vaharai in everybody on Kaminar. The first thing I thought of, did you see the movie Kingsman, the Secret Service? I have not. No, neither its sequel nor the original. So the villain in that movie, and I'm not even going to like without giving away like every spoiler of this movie. It's not a great movie, but the villain of the movie 
has the idea that he's going to send a signal through everybody's cell phones that's going to turn them into like a brutal murderer Mm. and unleash this id and people just start like the signal plays and people just start brutally killing each other. And that was the first thing I thought of, like, what if they just unleashed the Kingsman signal onto all of the Kelpians and they all start going under Vaharai and they're all in terrible pain and then they like sit up and start murdering each other. That could have happened. And they're lucky it didn't. Now, we don't know that it didn't. <laughs> that's true. Uh, again, I'm speaking towards our different aesthetics. You thought of Kingsman. I thought of the brown note from South Park in terms of just sending out one, especially when Tilly's talking about, like, <laughs> I'm going to send out one frequency to trigger everything in everybody. I still don't necessarily understand the science behind it. Uh, what did you make of the fact that, we sort of talked about this in episode four, but you know, the doctor confirmed it in the opening moments here of episode six that Baharai is a genuine like change in not only your physiology but your brain chemistry as well which again explains why saru's fear has been replaced with this sense of courage well it makes perfect sense i mean first of all i'm pretty sure the brown note was the inspiration (laughs) for this signal so that already i that's hilarious but it's something that I, and I think that Star Trek has played around with this before, like being able to play a signal to trigger a biological impulse. That's been done. Um, but secondly, it, it tracks with like, that's mm. what puberty is in humans. It's an entire like bodily change. You release hormones and the hormones affect your brain chemistry as much as they affect anything else. It's why teenagers turn into such sociopaths. <laughs> that's very true. So I guess by comparison, what the bowel are doing would be like if there was this uh, this sort of council of like very feeble old people who were ki- were just basically bringing in like if you turn once you turn 13 years old, you got brought in for to be sacrificed because that was the, the balance. So essentially, it's an entire culture filled with babies and tweens uh, and a bunch of octogenarians just like running a shadow organization over them. God, those TV channels must be terrible on that planet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, no, there's no streaming. They're still using the the rabbit ears. It's a it's a it's a weird world the Bowel have made. But like they said, it's, it's sort of like their weird way of cobbling together a semblance of power, and they're going to try to maintain that no matter what. I'm very intrigued to see where Keminar goes from there. Saru might have uh, unintentionally destroyed his home planet, but at least he destroyed it on like his own people's terms. I guess. What do you reckon the Ba'ul actually did with all the Kelpians once they slaughtered them? Do you suppose they ate them? I mean, we know that Kelpians are delicious. Yeah, it's a good question, because especially since we saw, again, I don't know if they're being beamed, because Saru got beamed, he got intercepted beaming off of Discovery. It's not like he got beamed up in one of those watchful eye pylons, which again, if you're speaking about the authoritarian and the big brother of it all, the watchful eyes is a big old red flag or red burst right there. I guess my assumption is that they get beamed aboard this Baul lair and then they either get devoured or I'm thinking like a factory farm. Like they just walk into a big room and a big saw comes in and cuts off all their heads. But to your point, waste <laughs> management awful. has to be a big old. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's 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 gory. It's Star Trek Discovery. They're not afraid of standards here. That's true. Uh, they, standards and practices. They show boobs and they say the S word. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I, but I guess to your point, waste management would be difficult 
because they have all these bodies that they collect, uh, you know, every every portion of time. So maybe they do eat them. It, maybe that predatory thing is actually true in that, yes, what they may be actually doing is more about uh, maintaining power. But if they get a little bit of, you know, num nums on the side, it's not too bad. Yeah. Maintain power and get your num nums. It's a pretty sweet deal for the bowel. I would say so, Megan, which is maybe why they didn't want to upset that balance too much, because like, look, we got a free meal and we're, you know, we're still the dominant species. Why would you ever want to change this? And I do wonder, uh, I mean, I guess that graph did show that the bowel species was increasing. uh, But if they're procreating, where are they hiding? Because I'm assuming, I mean, we did see ships in the in this in the sky that are in the in space that were surrounding Discovery. So maybe they're hanging out on ships, but I just can't imagine where they're all living. Yeah, and that that is the other weird thing about the Ba'ul. It's like, all we ever see of them is they're in their ships. So if they just live on their ships, why do they even have to care about Kaminar? Like, if they're afraid of the Kelpians, can't they just go, like, chill somewhere else? That's true. They do have the technology to go to a completely other planet. Uh, I don't know, maybe they, they, they have that home base and they just, you know, it's, it's great real estate. They got it for a good price. It's rent-controlled. Uh, they don't want to necessarily give up the territory, so they decide to sort of lord over the people that occupy the land with them. Because to your point, they do have the means to pursue things elsewhere on some other planet where maybe there's a there's a population that's even more feeble than they are that they're able to take control over without perpetuating some vast lies in order to do so. I guarantee you that's how this story resolves. Like there's a terrible civil war between the Baul and the Kelpians, and the Kelpians are going to look like they're going to win. Baul are going to pick up their toys and go to some other planet where there's some better people to oppress. Yeah, actually, that's that's very true. And I guess we'll see what happens from there. I don't know. Do you? I talked about this before. Do you think this might be a wrap on Kaminar? Do you think we might see Saru, particularly his Saru's sister, return? I can't imagine what else there is for them to do. Uh, I, we'd have to make the whole thing the Kelpian show, I feel like, if we go there. I mean, listen, don't put it past CBS All Access. Oh, geez. Well, they're giving them their own spinoff series. I yeah, think that's exactly. What, that's what's going to happen. And we'll have like, we're going to have a whole like, it's going to be called Star Trek All Access because we're going to have the Picard show. We're going to have the Section 31 spinoff. We're going to have the Lower Decks. We're going to have the animated series. And now we're having the Kaminar series. I give all the credit in the world to Serana, Saru's sister. She learned a lot of things in this episode with only the slightest bit of incredulousness. You know, she she pretty much took everything with the, you know, like, okay, this is the reality and I'm having a composed reaction to it. I think that her her lone outburst at Saru for being like, oh, so the reason why you're back is not for me. It's because you're following your big old red thing in the sky. I would not have been surprised if she attributed that to basically all the crap that was going on in this episode in terms of just bursting her worldview wide open. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of the other reason that we have the Prime Directive slash General Order 1 is because when you tell people that their entire way of life is a lie, it tends to not go well. Yeah. The, again, it seemed like she sort of had one foot there. At least she does talk about, and we see through flashback, that she actually saw Saru rise in this shuttlecraft that was either from the Shenzhou or the Andromeda or the Archimedes, depending on what timeline you're in, I suppose. So I guess she always sort of held out this belief that he 
had been freed and that he she acknowledges that maybe she was living in an oppressive culture and again saru bringing up some really interesting real life analogs that hey on the bright side you know we we do live in a place that doesn't have poverty or hunger on the downside we have to ritualistically sacrifice ourselves uh but she seemed to maybe some of his you know his firebrand thinking rubbed off on her while they were living together with her father where she always sort of believed that there was something greater for him and that, you know, he did not end up getting sacrificed to the bowel because of his uh, liberal thinking. Yeah, it's more like I always knew my brother was really weird and that something really, really weird was going to happen to him someday. Yeah, and I'm happy to see, again, from a Saru perspective, that relationship as well. You know, we saw the analog of his sister through... Michael Burnham, obviously, but that relationship is extremely complicated, especially in season one. So it's interesting to see someone who Saru deeply cares about unconditionally, how he reacts to that and how, you know, that specifically butts up against this idea of General Order One and his newfound sense of courage. Yeah, and that that takes us to the like, oh, well, I can I can trigger violent puberty on everybody on the entire planet because it's for my sister so it's okay yeah it's, it is it is true i guess in this case the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many surprisingly <laughs> or the one yeah the, <laughs> the needs of this one person i really care about outweigh the needs of an entire species i'm just really intrigued to see considering the attitude change that saru himself had how all these kelpians are going to act i don't think they're going to riot like you suggested but they're just basically going to be walking around with like all their their chests puffed out, you know, talking about just how cool and brave they are now. Uh, they they've all got the BDE. Yeah, basically, uh, that's essentially what they triggered. It's it's an odd thing, but I guess you know, considering that these are the only Kelpians, this is a huge moment in Kelpian history, and Saru was essentially a game changer from that perspective. I guess I just I just don't see this ending well for the Kelpians. Definitely not, but I think that we're the show at least tried to put like a happy pin on it, so we move on and forget about the implications. Uh, and I'm happy at least to see a transformed Saru again, because while there were some interesting examinations of you know his fearful persona, the Pavo episode is a good example of it, where he wanted to completely abdicate his role in Starfleet because he had been told that he wouldn't have fear anymore. The fact that he has this new this new persona is going to provide some really interesting things. Uh, you know, come future episodes, especially now the fact that Saru has, you know, broken this thing that he was most fearful of, which was going back to his home planet, this one rule that he really said he would always follow. Now that he's, oh, I, I broke that so that I can make everyone happier. I wonder if that's going to give him more disregard for the rules that have been uh, set up for him to follow. Yeah, he was so much of a yes man up until this point. And now... It's like he's going to have other things motivating him, and I think he's going to butt heads with people a lot more often. And having that big question mark out there, I think it's going to make him kind of a loose cannon, and it'll be interesting to see if he ends up really seriously effing things up for Disco at some point. Yeah, considering that, like you said, he's a bit of a hothead now. And that's crazy to think about from Saru, who always tried to approach things very cautiously and very logistically, remember, this is the guy who, his first time sitting in the captain's chair, went through, did the Arium, and pulled an entire laundry list of all these previous captains who he admires and tries to cobble together their best qualities. Now he's running hot. He's seeing red in more ways than one. And so 
that might have his emotions overpower his own sense of logic. And it's also, I think this is where he and he and Pike are going to come to heads in my opinion, yeah. come to blows uh, because I think that was sort of hinted towards in the beginning of the season. But I think Saru was more than happy to say, yeah, he can take it. I'll take it during, you know, times he goes away or missions that deal specifically with me. But I think that now he might walk around saying I knew best this time. I was able to save my people I know what to do in this situation over you, Pike, and it could lead to a very interesting power struggle that we have not seen yet this season. Yeah, I think he's going to probably eventually, he's going to recalibrate. He's going to kind of, he's going to overcorrect a little bit. He's going to tip back the other direction and sort of find that place. And it's it's a lot like something very near and dear to my heart right now, um, regulating your emotions when you are a toddler. Mm. it's you are like all of a sudden you're a completely different person and you realize oh i can break these rules i don't have to just do everything my parents tell me and it's kind of a matter of finding out like where that line is and like where you can come back and it's like okay i don't know everything but i know some things and my parents know some things too and i think i think saru is kind of in that toddler headspace where he's going to kind of lose control and he's going to test the limits and he's going to find where the limits are and he's going to step back. But right now it's like his long list of captains he admires is basically down to one name and it's not a captain and it's him. Yeah, it's basically he's the Bart Simpson gif of him banging pots and pans singing I am so great. Like that's <laughs> that's where he is right now. Speaking of what's to come, uh, do you make anything of Michael's new mission to go to Vulcan to see if she can find out stuff about Spock? Uh, I think she's not going to find anything about Spock. I mean, allegedly we saw Spock in the preview, but mm -hmm. I am not putting any stock in that. I think we are going to get Spock teased yet again. Uh, I mean, it'll be interesting to go. I, I don't think we've gone to Vulcan outside of flashbacks in this series. Uh, and even back then, it was more in like the flash of the panel. Like we went to Amanda and Sarek's house. We went to the Vulcan Academy. We really haven't seen too much of the planet. So well, that'll be a nice little, again, uh, comparison touchstone as to how that's covered versus the original series. But it's at least moving the chains a little bit. You know, we're nearing the halfway point of the season. And like you said, Spock's going to appear in some way, shape, or form next episode. So that's at least pushing things along a bit. I, pr I understand your frustration with not really doing anything with him this episode. I was happy for the diversion just because I was happy we got more advancement of saru as a character in more ways than one but now we can get back on the path we know a bit more about the red angel and what it may be we're ready to go back after spock uh disco is back on course i i guess so i guess disco has picked up the beat once again yeah exactly all right mike so is there anything else we need to touch on before we wrap things up here no like you said it seemed like a relatively straightforward a plot with some random little details and and you know two person scenes thrown in there so there's not a lot of straight information to speak about i do want to give a brief shout out to a uh, javier botet who plays the baul in this episode uh he was diagnosed with marfan syndrome uh which sort of gave him this weird sort of skeletal frame which really again imb uh, imbued this really horrific quality to the baul so again i just want to give massive credit to how they at least characterize the bowel and the Kelpie and say what you want to about the circumstances that might come as a result of Disco's interference in this episode. But when it comes to 
Star Trek building a universe of diverse species that encounter various structures that exist in our society today. I feel like this episode totally nailed it right there, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was happy for this brief rest spot before we get back on the wo- get back on the road and drive to our ultimate destination. All right. And um, Mike, did you do anything for Hollywood Reporter this week? I did. So I did uh, an interview with Doug Jones where we spoke a bit about the episode, uh, both this and episode four, particularly, as we mentioned before, some of the more uh, dictatorial connections between the Bowel Kelpian power dynamic and what may exist in the world today. In the past, I know that the uh, the two writers of this episode actually pulled from historical examples like the uh, Japanese invasion of Korea and how it sort of imbued a lot of characteristics on Korea for a long time. So there are historical connotations there that, again, pervade into our new world, or our, our real world. Also got us thoughts on a couple of other things, like uh, the Oscars coming up, given all the controversies, a couple of other projects that he's working on. Doug Jones is a lovely person to talk to, and he's absolutely brilliant. I think just his versatility shines through in this episode given what he's supposed to do with a big old set of prosthetics on his face it's just it's an absolute miracle so i was so happy i got the opportunity to talk with him you can check that all out on thr.com slash star trek discovery and more to come especially as we round the bend on actually seeing spock on our screens for the first time this season well, that's super interesting stuff, Mike. I can't wait to check it out. Um, everybody can follow Mike over on Twitter at a Mike Bloom type, and you can follow me on Twitter at Haymaker Hattie. And that's a great way for you to get in touch with us and tell us everything that you liked about our coverage, everything you didn't like, everything you liked and didn't like about the show. We love hearing from you. The other way to get in touch with us is to go to postshowrecaps.com, find the page for the episode and leave us a comment there. We always read those and we'd love to interact with you there. We got a lot of great stuff coming up on Post Show Recaps. Uh, Rob Sestrinino and I are finishing our coverage of The Walking Dead. Um, there's a few. We're getting into the end of the season on that. They're, we're kind of in the home stretch. It's getting really good and really weird. So I hope you guys will check mm. us out on that. And I know we got the Game of Thrones rewatch that's winding down and so much more to come. And we hope that you'll stick around for all of it that appeals to you. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll see you next week. Special thanks to our friends over at True Car for sponsoring this episode of Post Show Recaps. Every car comes with its share of stories that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up your first date, that luxury package you got after that big promotion, or the mileage you save by riding your bike all summer long. Now, while you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell it or trade it in. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation and moonroof. They will bump up your car's value high mileage you already knew it was going to cost you but now you can find out how much it's going to ding your wallet so you can plan ahead and once you're finished you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes which you could take to a local certified dealer so you could cash out or trade in so when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car check out true car today true cash offer not available in all areas